Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. We have a lot of ground to cover in today's episode with some interesting guests. We'll start with some inside tips on how to wow during a new business presentation. Steve Assel, who um, spent nearly the last decade with FICO as VP of Corporate Marketing, a position he just left this summer, will share some tips and tricks on what really impressed he and his colleagues during um, agency pitches, um, many, many agency pitches that, that Steve sat through over the last eight-plus years with FICO. Uh, then we'll tackle the rise and fall of the unicorn with uh, Alex Wellens, who's co-founder of the IPO advisory and IR firm Blue Shirt. Um, Alex will be able to talk about sort of the role that communications has played uh, in the U.S. tech IPO market, especially over the last couple of years. Um, finally, we'll close today's show with Jenny Chapman of Amec and, and a sort of a lively discussion about uh, the organization's new measurement framework that's, um, a, that's a big part of Measurement Month, which we are in the thick of now. So with that, let's um, welcome Steve Assel to the show. Thanks, Arti. So you've had um, sort of a, an, an, a background that's been split um, pretty evenly between agency and the corporate side. So can you kind of remind us sort of what your agency experience was? Sure. I, I worked for a couple of decades in agencies. I worked in some uh, boutiques, some specialty boutiques, and then I, I worked in Text 100. I ran the San Francisco office there. And then most recently, uh, I, I ran the San Francisco office of Fleischman Hillard and, and also uh, co-chaired the global tech practice there. And then, and then from there, I actually went to work for a client, uh, which was a, a FICO, an $850 million global analytics software company. And I, I worked there for eight years running global you know, communications and marketing programs. Right. Okay. So, um, so you've spent basically the last decade client side, um, and so I, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on sort of how the role of sort of the CCO evolved and, you know, over the last decade, um, you know, I'm sure it, it's, it's varied from organization to organization, but just from, from your perspective, what, what, what have you seen? Well, I think, you know, I guess I would comment somewhat qualitatively about this, you know, uh, Corn Ferry and the Page Society, they've done some pretty thorough studies and ongoing studies on the, the evolving role of the CCO. I think the thing I worry about with that, with the CCO role um, is it's, I think it's at risk of becoming an irrelevant title. Now, it's not irrelevant if it's your title, <laughs> if, if you are a CCO, but, but I'm not sure its relevance, or I guess more accurately, the relevance of the communications function is very clear inside a lot of corporations. I, I think that aside from crisis management, a lot of CEOs and CFOs and CIOs and even some CMOs, chief marketing officers, have, have very low expectations of the communications function. And there are exceptions to that, you know, of course, um, but I think the, the exceptions are driven not so much by the CCO's capabilities. I don't think there's a capabilities problem. Um, I, I have lots of friends who are CCOs and they're very, very smart, very capable people. I think, I think the, um, you know, I think the value that's placed on that function and its future and its potential for further evolution is driven a lot by the CEO's understanding of the value of communications. 
And there are some very enlightened CEOs like you know, Mark Benioff, if you just look at, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, Jim, Ginny Rometty, you know, at IBM, I think if you look at, uh, you know, CEOs who are kind of power users of the communications function, these, you know, these CEOs have communications teams and executives who are supporting them who do very impressive work. Um, uh, and I think they do that work in part because it's expected of them. But but uh, I think uh, there's still a large number of call you know companies that s sort of tolerate the communications function as kind of a necessary cost of doing business that the people you've got to keep around just in case something goes off the rails and uh, you know it's kind of like well while these people are sitting around the firehouse uh, you might as well put them to work supporting the marketing function or you know that sort of thing so. Um, I, I don't mean to be so cynical, but I think that is, uh, you know, still in a lot of companies, uh, the way the function is viewed. Um, and, and I think there's a risk of it, you know, being marginalized. Wow. Yeah. Strong, strong words indeed. Um, so, oh, oh so I, there, there's, there's actually a, a, a couple of follow-ups I'd have to that. I mean, the first is, you know, we've all been to on the show circuit, on the this, the conference circuit, and heard every you know the the you know elevating the role of communications in the C-suite, or and and you'll hear varying to your point, you'll hear varying perspectives. You'll hear people that'll say, "Yep, it's happened." You know, the organizationally, communications has a chair, uh, you know, has a seat at at the at the C-suite. Um, other people will say, like like you're saying, that it's still it's still a struggle at a lot of organizations, and that communications is largely marginalized or, 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 you know, like you said, I mean, just sort of seen as, oh, well, those guys will just, you know, sit under, under marketing and, and, you know, if there's a really big crisis, we'll, we'll, we'll pull them in, into the room. Um, I, I, I mean, so it sounds like there's, there's really, I, I guess, I mean, there's just really no verdict yet on this and, and there probably shouldn't be it, but um, I mean, I mean, why do you think there's such this, such a wide sort of perspective on, on where, where what what sort of communication standing is um, organizationally? Well, I guess part of it is that we in communication still um, tend to, to speak our own language. I mean, we we you know we have our own kind of dialect that we talk about about the things that we understand to be important in a business, but it, that isn't the dialect. It isn't the language that's spoken um, in by the rest of the members of the C-suite. Um, that they, they tend to speak in uh, very much in financial terms. The the metrics that most CEOs are are measured by have to do with uh, you know revenue growth, profitability, uh, you know EPS, these kinds of metrics. And you know when we're talking about reputation or we're talking about you know the, the more esoteric things like that, um, you know it's it's really uh, it's a different language. And so I think we're seen as these kind of like, you know, maybe interesting brainy people, but again, as specialists and, and when there's a crisis, okay, then yeah, then, then the rest of the C-suite will come around and speak our language. Cause we're, you know, cause they need, they need to understand what we have to say. Um, you know, I think there's a similar phenomenon going on in, in terms of this topic of integration of, of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, integrated communications, uh, you know, I think the concept of integration is really easy to grasp, but the execution of it 
is really hard to pull off, not so much by agencies. Uh, I mean, the, the agencies can kind of get it together, uh, but I think uh, their clients have a real challenge understanding, you know, and, and being able to actually execute on the notion of integrated communication. So that was actually going to be my next question because integration was what was going to, what was, it was going to save us all, right? I mean, that, that the, the new world was channel agnostic. It was, it was, it was idea driven. And so I wanted to get, I mean, so in your experience that, that hasn't necessarily played out um, the way that people hoped it would um, internally. Well, I would say it's really, really early. Um, and, and if you look at, you know, if, if you think about it, we, we live in a, in a period of hyper-specialization. I mean, just, just, I mean, the Sabre Awards, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, RT, but, you know, I think, I think we're up to 58 categories, aren't we, in, of the Sabre Awards? You know, so we're saying, essentially, yeah. there, are, there are, you know, 58 different ways of thinking about branding, reputation, and engagement. That's, that's a lot of specialization. Um, and, and specialization is, is a sign of sophistication. It's, it's a, it's a sign of economic progress. Uh, it, you know, economically advanced societies have a lot of specialization, but that specialization kind of runs counter to the forces of integration. And meanwhile, we have companies like, you know, like Cisco and SAP and many others who are decentralizing the communications function right now. So that, that pendulum that we know swings back and forth from time to time, it's swinging away from integration, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and towards disintegration, if you will. Um, and, you know, we're seeing, you know, the, the entropy of this, of these systems increasing. Um, and, and so, so I think there's a lot of value on integration, you know, on connecting the dots, no question. Uh, at, when, when I was at FICO, for example, we integrated marketing and government relations. These are functions that in many companies operate independently. In many companies, they report up to different parts of the, the corporation. Uh, but, but we did things like you know, when we were planning a new product launch, a new, say, introducing a new uh, scoring model um, for FICO scores, uh, this, you know, in addition to, of course, we, we – spent a lot of time talking to customers about what they needed as we designed these new models. But we also began talking to the government relations team and saying, look, how are legislators and regulators and consumer advocates and others, how are they going to perceive this new scoring model? And what we found was that oftentimes the government relations team would come back and say, well, we got to be really careful here because there's a lot of room for a lot of potential for misunderstanding about this new model if we're not careful. So as a result, we would modify the way we would go to market and the way we would introduce a new model um, to, to take into consideration the way it might be perceived or misunderstood potentially uh, in policy circles. And, 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 and we did the reverse too. When we were planning a, a, uh, a government relations campaign, something that was designed to influence policy, we would consult, we made sure that, that we consulted with the scores marketing and public relations and other you know, teams to, um, to make sure that the, that the government relations campaign was informed by those points of view, by how customers would perceive it or by the implications or the limitations of the product, those kinds of things. So by integrating those two functions, it, it, there were some real 
benefits in terms of competitive advantage and other things. But but if you look at the practical realities in the market, if you, if you're an agency and you're a true believer in integration, um, but your client's bonus is pegged to media prominence, then then they have no incentive to fund a campaign that's going to increase conversion rates off the website. It's just that's kind of in the nice to have category. They're not going to think that's a bad idea. But but most people I know in corporations today, they have a hard enough time funding the need to have stuff without thinking about the nice to have stuff. Nobody can really think about the nice to haves. So, you know, I mean, just to use another example, if, if, if my performance is, is based upon lead generation, um, and you know, my agency comes to me and says, well, you know, I've got the, we have this, this program designed to not only boost leads, but it's also going to, um, helps, you know, help you strengthen ties with consumer advocates um, that I'm going to kind of think of that as like, oh, that sounds like a nice to have. I want you to put all of your attention into lead gen because that's all I can afford. That, I mean, I think, I mean, you, you, you nailed the frustration that I hear again and again on the agency side is that they are trying to, you know, offer these integrated services. They want to break into to new areas other than media relations. I mean, it's, it's done a huge disservice to our industry that public relations has come to mean press relations. Yeah. Um, and, and then they, but they go to their client and the client says, oh, well, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah, that's great. But, but really I, 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 where's the ink, you know, I, I need to see our media coverage and this, and this, you know, and, and so the, the industry, I mean, it's really, the innovation's really driven by the clients ultimately. So as, as much as the agencies are doing really cool new things, if, like you said, I mean, if their clients aren't buying into it, um, I mean, that, that, that stalls innovation right there, that stalls progress. And, and I think, as you know this, Steve, I mean, I think that's why so many PR agencies are so eager to find new points of entry into an organization, right? I mean, they're saying, well, right. you know, we don't want, we want to know the CMO. We don't want to know the, 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 the director of communications because that puts us in this, and this little, you know, that paints us in this corner. If we have a relationship with the CMO, that suddenly opens up, you know, new doors for us. Well, right. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the the importance of speaking the language of business, um, which increasingly is about data and it's about uh, you know financial performance um, uh, and and being able to speak that language as a as kind of a, as an entry point uh, you know and you know and and then eventually getting around to the benefits of of integration. I mean, I think if we can, you know, as a as a profession, if we can express the value of integration in those terms, uh, in a way that that C level executives will get it. That's, you know, that's. I know everybody's everybody's always gunning for the C suite, but that that is where change takes place. You know, I, I'm just I was just thinking about. Uh, um, I think just yesterday. Uh, Holmes report issued a you know kind of a news flash about HP Inc. Uh, doing a, you know kind of a review of their agencies. Now, for some time now, many people, including many agencies, have been espousing the virtues of diversity, gender diversity, and other kinds of diversity in the workplace. But but you noted that if I read if I read your story correctly, it was the CMO of HP Inc. It was Antonio Lucio. Who's the one who's driving this change? Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't, wasn't the people. I'm 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 sure there are many people in 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 the communications 
organization at HP who think this is a good idea, but they're not the ones who are driving the change. It's Antonio mm -hmm. who is saying it's time to reconsider, uh, you know, the the supporting structure of our of our company and make sure that it's living by this thing that that we believe to be important. And and there, I mean, their their CCO Karen Kahn reports into Antonio reports into the C so it's a CCO right. position that reports into a CMO where I mean in most organizations you think that those two would be peers um, but that's not so uh, at HP um, so I mean on this topic then I mean so what you know what marketing disciplines were did you have decision making authority on with regards to hiring agencies I mean were you when you were at FICO I mean were you purely the decision maker around hiring PR agencies, and I know you had a global role, so it would have been PR agencies around the world, or were you able to, if not make the final decision, at least provide input into hiring decisions for other marketing agencies? Well, yes, so all of the above. So I, I yes, I, I hired you know agencies all around the world, uh, PR agencies, uh, our lobbying firm, um, uh, but also was involved in hiring, um, uh, you know, you know, create other kinds of, you know, kind of creative services, designers, um, uh, you know, web design, uh, you know, digital marketing, uh, you know, a, a number of different, you know, kinds of vendors. And, and there's a, there's, as you're aware, there's a, been a real proliferation of, uh, once again, of specialties, of specialist boutiques, uh, some doing very interesting work. Um, so uh, yeah, so I was I was involved directly in most cases, and then in other cases uh, as part of a, a team of decision makers. All right, so Steve, it sounds like you have been in a lot of new business pitches, both on on both ends actually. Um, more recently, sort of on on the receiving uh, end of that. So I, I'm curious to hear, you know, you know, sitting through all of those those new business pitches, what. Can an agency do, or what? What would an agency do that would immediately impress you, or immediately wow you? And and maybe it wouldn't. It wouldn't be enough that you would hire them, but you would. It would certainly get them right on the short list. Well, if you think about it, what what a, any kind of agency search process should yield is th there should be a, a connection between the agency and um, and the the client, you know, the, the company, such that the the way the services are delivered is consistent with the with the company's culture. And that seems like a weird way to think about it. but but I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people I've seen in in corporate decision making, positions make is that they assume all agencies are alike. They say there are or that all large agencies are alike or all tech boutiques are alike. And and they could be forgiven for thinking that because if you look at the way uh, that that most agencies market themselves, and agencies are notoriously bad at marketing themselves. And if you if you go to the websites of of you know a half dozen agencies and you, you look at them, you'll see that they're almost interchangeable. You know, they all provide these laundry lists of here are the services we provide. You know, we do executive media training and we do, you know, we work with bloggers and we do social, you know, this and, you know, content marketing, that and that kind of stuff. And, the, and, and if you're in the client seat and you look at these things, it looks like the same lists of, of services. And, and in fact, they are often, the services themselves are very similar. What's different is how those services are delivered. And I think 
to, to get back to your question about what's impressive is what's Im what what is always impressive is when you sit down and you meet with s and people from an agency and the way they operate is is similar to the way that we on the corporate side operate. Um, so so for example, you know some you know some agencies are are very process oriented and buttoned down and they do and methodical and that sort of thing others are much more spontaneous and creative and and one isn't necessarily better than the other but if if my culture my company culture is to be spontaneous and to be fast moving and so forth and and i sit down with a, you know an agency that tells me all about their processes and and how methodical they are that's we're, we're going to have a disconnect doesn't matter how many you know executive media training sessions they've delivered over the years um uh, or if if uh, you know if my company culture is very blunt and direct and fast moving, and their company culture is very nice and polite, um, it's not that one is better or worse than the other. It's just that that we're, we're the likelihood of our being able to work together effectively is going to be much greater if if our cultural if our way of doing business is aligned. So okay, so then. You know, I mean, what I've seen, and I'm curious whether whether you've seen this in, in pitches, right, is that, you know, agencies will sometimes tailor their culture to to whoever they're pitching, right? So they'll try to guess. I, I mean, I see this with, with agencies where, like, if they're going in for a startup, you know, they'll, they'll bring a different energy, they'll bring a different um, maybe style um, than if they're pitching, um, you know, a, a, a blue chip company. Um, so do you... I mean, can you see through that? Like, I mean, I mean, on your end, do you ever feel like an agency is, 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 is putting forth a culture that may not be authentic to it, but they are, you know, based on sort of what they've gathered about, um, but your organization, you know, they've, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to say what, what you want to hear essentially. I don't know. In, in my experience, I'm not, I'm seeing a different problem actually, because what I, what I what I, I haven't seen and I've heard I've been had pitches from many, many agencies now over the last few years in different parts of the world. And I haven't seen um, I haven't seen agencies really try to fake it. What I've seen is a different problem, which is that they haven't bothered to even try to figure out what our culture is. Um, they they assume just as I think. Uh, client side people tend to assume that all agencies are the same. I think that agencies have a tendency to assume that all clients are the same or are like them. So if if one agency has teams that are you know scrappy and high energy and appropriate for and for for early stage companies or for companies that are scrappy and high energy, and they bring them in for those kinds of pitches, and they have also have teams that are more you know buttoned down and oriented towards, and they bring those in for that. I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, what what um, what kind of amazes me is is when agencies don't bother to leverage their own networks that they have to figure out uh, the dynamics that exist uh, within my own culture. And and I hear similar complaints from uh, you know from colleagues of mine in in other corporate positions that that agencies that come in and didn't even bother um, to kind of learn about the, those internal dynamics. So oftentimes agencies will come into a pitch and they're armed with all sorts of 
uh, external data. You know, we conducted a media audit and we looked at, and we did some analytics on, you know, on the social graph and we found these things. They do have all this sort of external data. Um, uh, and, and that's useful. It's important, but it's, it's insufficient because oftentimes what's really going on in the room is there's kind of a, you know, a nominal decision maker, the person who's supposedly the, the client decision maker, and there might be a de facto decision maker who's a different person, who's, who's somebody else in the room, who's actually uh, really the one who's going to make the decision. Or there might be um, rivalries. You, you know, you asked earlier about turf battles and those kinds of things. You know, those are common in any organization. And, and so there may be uh, uh, people in, in, in the room who, um, you know, and, and there are things that people, you know, that the people on the client side understand that, well, this person's just gunning for promotion is a big show off. And this other person um, is about to go on maternity leave and we don't know what the hell we're going to do while she's out. And there are rumors um, that our budget might get whacked next quarter. And, you know, so they, the, the people internally have all sorts of information that the, the agency people could theoretically find out and that could inform the way they approach the conversation. But in my experience, if they, they don't, they, they come in very, you know, uh, very confident in their sort of outside in view and um, neglecting to just do a little bit of homework uh, and exercise their networks to find out what's really going on inside the company. So, so what you, so, so what would impress you, it sounds like at least one thing is that an agency sort of, you know, does a little bit of investigation and sort of gets, it sounds like, like dirt on what's happening essentially inside of, like, what are the, the actual, the real dynamics inside of the organization? I mean, I wonder if the reason, I mean, even even if agencies hear, oh, you know, this person is, is going to be going on maternity leave and, you know, and she's really crucial to the to the team and so they're, they're, everybody's freaked out about that or whatever, whatever, you know, piece of gossip they might hear. Uh, do you think they're afraid of misfiring potentially or, or having faulty information and then building a pitch around that um, and then just, just completely missing the mark? Because, I mean, unless it comes from the organization themselves, I mean, or they have someone who's there internally who, who, who's trusted, how do they, like, how do, how do they know that, that the information they're getting is solid enough that they can hinge their pitch on that? Well, I think that that's true of any information. I mean, that, you know, whether it's information that's kind of through a grapevine or if it's information that's, you know, done through some, you know, some sort of media analytics, um, you have to evaluate it and, 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 and someone's got to decide, you know, how much weight are we going to put on this information? But, but the fact is, you know, effective communications people are very good at ferreting out information. You know, we do this is we do this with reporters, with bloggers, with others. You know, we get to know them. We understand, oh, this person's, you know, uh, he and his wife are about to have a baby or she's, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know, about to go on vacation or, you know, we kind of get this sort of information. And then we, we use that not, not in a manipulative way necessarily, but we, we leverage that, that information to do our jobs more effectively. And, and all I'm saying is that um, it's a bit surprising to me how seldom agencies seem to do that when they're uh, when they're you know when they're pitching for a new piece of business. They do it when they're pitching a story, <laughs> um, but somehow when they're pitching for a new piece of business, um, they they don't exercise those networks. I mean, I, I can't tell you you know when I was running pitches, I always made I, I run them in a very transparent way. When I'm when I'm you know looking for a new agency, I'm very transparent. I always say, call us anytime, 
ask us any questions. And, and it always amazed me how few agencies took advantage of that. One or two would, and that was impressive to me. Um, not in and of itself, but they would they would take the time to you know call and ask questions, and then that would. I would see that reflected in what they presented, but there were always, I would say more often than not, agencies that would receive the RFP, I wouldn't get a, wouldn't hear a peep from them until they came in to present to us. <laughs> they wouldn't have called anybody else inside the company or anything else. Uh, and, and here was all this, here was an offer of information uh, that they could have, uh, you know, uh, that they just didn't take advantage of. Okay, so two questions, a two-part question on that. The first is what, what are the types of questions that an agency, you know, has asked you in that in that sort of interim period between receiving the the RF, the, the RFP and, and actually coming into pitch? Um, yeah, I mean, what are the questions that wowed you that made you think okay, the, they're 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 smart, they're asking the right right questions? And on the flip side of that, has an agency ever taken advantage of that and asked you a question and and you just thought, oh my gosh, if that's their question, I don't I I don't know that they're the right the right fit for us, or I don't know that they're ready. Well, on the uh, yeah, on the, f- the I guess answering the second one first, you know, I I can't think of times when somebody asked me such a goofy question that I was like, oh brother, you know, um, because I think um, certainly, you know, at you know when I was at FICO, FICO is a very it has a very in some ways a very complex business, and so I don't think anybody expected, you know, it, it, there's you know there are many people who are very, very smart who don't fully understand FICO's business um, as just one example. And I think that's true of a lot of, you know, sort of global companies that have multiple product lines that they sell into multiple industries and uh, markets and so forth. That these, these businesses are often complicated. So um, you'd, I, 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 I don't recall ever getting a question where I thought, oh, brother, what a, what a dumb question. They really think that, you know, um, I think uh, in terms of questions that impress me, usually they're, they're questions that show some insight, questions that, you know, that show that they did some thinking first. They didn't ask me, you know, simply, well, what's your budget? And, you know, wh- you know, what, you know, sort, sort of the obvious questions. But if there are questions that, that demonstrate that they did some thinking before asking the question, that's impressive. So what about in terms of like I like I wonder how common that is, right? I mean like you know you said that you know when you do um an an RFP you, you try to be very transparent and available to the agencies that you invite um to to ask you questions. How common do you think that is? I mean do you think you know most of your your peers would would do the same or or would they consider it to be sort of a nuisance for an agency, you know, during that interim period to, to come to them with, with questions. And, and I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, could, could that be taken, you know, the, the opposite of what it was to you, whereas you, you, for you, it was like, oh, this shows an, an agency that shows they have initiative, that they're, that they're, um, that they've done some homework, that they're thinking, um, is there a risk of an agency coming off as like too needy, for instance, and, and, uh, a CCO saying, look, I'm already so busy and I want an agency that can hit the ground running that's not going to come to me with, with questions all the time. And um, I don't know, could, could it kind of start you off on the wrong foot, I guess? Right. Well, there, I think there were a couple questions in there, but, but, but um, the, the, the fact is I don't think it's that common. And I know that from all my years in agencies. You know, one thing you, you learn uh, when you work in agencies is you learn how different – uh, companies 
approach the whole process of, of hiring uh, an agency. I mean, there are many different ways uh, that companies have of going about doing that. Um, and, and I would say in general, um, that kind of transparency is not common practice. I, you know, would encourage, uh, and I mean, one of the things, again, this is something I learned from years in agencies of observing this is that, that, that's not a, that's not very effective when, when, when the client puts all sorts of sort of constraints on the process. Um, and for example, I've been involved in pitches where th they said, okay, you're, you're allowed to ask two questions. Um, so choose your questions carefully. And by the way, every question you ask, we're going to publish that question, uh, and the answer to it, to all the other agencies who are pitching and any question they ask us, we're going to publish their questions and the answers to the, I've, I've been in involved in, in pitches like that, where they were, you were allowed two questions, like choose your questions carefully. Cause you only get two. Well, that that tells you something about the culture of that company. Um, uh, it and and it tells you one of the things it tells you is that uh, this is a company that kind of guards access and guards uh, and and uses information as power. And that's a useful data point. Is that a reason to not work with them? Not necessarily, but it's a useful data point. Um, and 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 you have to ask yourself when you're on the agency side, um, is that uh, something I'm comfortable with because if that's the way they're run, they're operating this process, I've got to assume that that's you know that when we're you know six nine twelve months into this relationship, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to they're going to withhold information from us. We're going to get surprised at the last minute about major announcements, and we're going to have to turn on a dime. You know, and maybe we're fine with that, um, or maybe that's not how we operate. But you know, that's that's a data point. And I, and I want to revisit something that you mentioned earlier about, you know, the way that, that, mar that agencies are, are, are terrible at marketing themselves and, you know, you go to their, their websites and they, they all sort of seem like, like they're the same. What if I, you know, if I'm an agency person listening to this, I mean, what could, what could agencies do differently to market themselves, you know, just, to, just in their overall marketing to make them stand out to clients like you. So when you're out there doing your, your research on the industry and figuring out which agencies you want to invite to a pitch. Um, what would make it easier for you to shortlist or, you know, to come up with that shortlist? Well, uh, there's a couple different, uh, questions in that question. I think are the, um, you know, seems what be, is, that seems to be a theme, huh? It is. <laughs> you're, you're good at asking these, these, uh, these multi-part questions. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, in, in any services business, uh, what, what differentiates a company, whether you're talking about you know, PR marketing services or accounting services, or you know, it, it, what differentiates one company from another is innovation. Um, but innovation is also really, really easy to copy in the services business. So, so companies that are constantly innovating, coming up with new approaches, tend to distinguish themselves. It, it, it's part of their culture. Um, it's not the only way to distinguish yourself, but that's that is you know kind of a, an effective way to do that. So. You know, I'm, you know, as a client, I'm drawn to companies, to, to agencies that are innovative and creative in their, their approach. So that are constantly taking risks and trying new things out and, and offering new kinds of services. I, I, I was always drawn to that because I saw, well, they're paying attention. They're paying attention to the dynamics and the same kinds of challenges that I've got to face. They're, they're, they're coming up with interesting ways of of addressing those. So I, I'm drawn to those kinds of, you know, companies, innovative ones. But then the second 
answer to your question is, you know, I think word of mouth, you know, using my own network, um, we all have networks. Um, and so when, when I'm, uh, you know, I think one of the things, one of the mistakes that I think a lot of client side people do in, in, I, I mentioned already, you know, kind of assuming that all agencies are the same is, um, is failing to do their homework in, as part of this process. When you're, when you're on the client side, um, you have a job to do to narrow down the list. And so, you know, when, when, when I've been looking for, uh, to hire a new agency in, in any part of the world, I start by going out to my network and asking people who are active in that, in that market, who's doing interesting work right now, who's doing creative stuff, who's, who are the rising stars? Um, and sometimes, in fact, I would say oftentimes the answer's can be surprising. They're not the, the the firms or the individuals you might have you might have thought or the, the ones you might have heard about. So I, I start by asking those kinds of questions of my own network. And then and then that for me is a jumping off point. Then I then I start looking into it further and say, well, you know, what what specifically and, and you know are these companies doing and 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 how might they how much how might what they're doing align with what I know we need in our business and we're going to need over the next couple of years. Indeed. So, uh, so do good work and make sure people know about it. It sounds like, um, let's see if I think we're, we're running out of time here, but, um, I, we should, we should continue this conversation at some point. So we'll, we'll have you back on at some point and I can, I can ask you lots of questions at once again. Okay, great. I look forward to that. Thanks, Arthi. Really appreciate Steve's, uh, candor there. So now let's, switch gears a little bit and talk about the U.S. tech IPO market and the role that communications has played in kind of building up uh, unicorns, sort of tearing them down and, and everything in between. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Arthi. Very nice to talk to you. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, I think this is a, a timely a timely topic. We've had um, some interesting IPOs, uh, or at least tech IPOs in, in the U.S. this summer. And so maybe to start off, I'll sort of paint sort of the picture to our listeners. And so, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Alex, there's been um, five U.S.-based tech uh, company IPOs this year so far. And this is in comparison to last year around this time, they had, there had been 18. And that's, uh, you, you can compare that to 2014, where I believe there were, what, 27 U.S.-based uh, tech IPOs? That's right. So, so kind of looking at these numbers, is this, um, are we, are we going through a, a sort of a cyclical slowdown? Is there something, is there another reason that accounts for, um, the fact that we've had less, uh, tech IPOs in the U S this year than, than last? Well, I think there are a number of factors that are impacting the pace of the IPO market. As I'm sure you and your listeners know, there's a tremendous amount of private money that was coming into the market over the last, call it 18 to 24 months, creating the so-called class of unicorns of very large, highly valued private companies uh, valued well over a billion dollars and you know, many in the tens of billions of dollars. And so the access to private capital was so, you know, relatively speaking, easy and at such compelling valuations that companies did not feel the need to go public. And that, I would say, is probably the most significant factor impacting the low rate of IPOs over the last, call it, uh, two years. Second factor that I'd point to is the tremendous volatility we've seen in the market. 
overall, the trends have been up and to the right. And now, obviously, the major indexes are trading all at highs or near record highs. But there's been a lot of volatility along the way. There have been a number of small corrections and some slightly larger corrections. And really, the IPO market is more, the pace of the IPO market is more based on volatility than if a market is at a certain level, meaning that the market does not have to be at all-time highs for IPOs, but what uh, the bankers and other constituents who make the decisions as to whether companies ultimately test the markets or not are really concerned about volatility. And certainly over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, we've seen a lot of volatility in the market. And so I think those are two of the major factors that have caused the slowdown in the IPO market, uh, speaking about technology over the last uh, 18 months or so. So speaking then about volatility, I wonder, does the, you know, we're obviously, we're in, we're, in a, we're in a U.S. presidential election year this year. Um, there's always some market uncertainty around that. Is that, is that playing in to things at all? I do think it's playing into things. Typically, uh, presidential election years are slightly lower from an IPO perspective. So that the, there's no question that that is uh, playing into it. I think that this election is particularly contentious and that there is a lot of uncertainty as to what might happen with the economy after this election. So again, speaking to my last point, volatility is really what investors and bankers are concerned about with the market. So the presidential election does add another layer of volatility to the market. I wrote a LinkedIn post uh, about a month ago, just sort of summarizing the IPO market and talking about that. And I think what we expect to see is that a few companies will try to get out in this window, uh, and by that I mean probably the September and mid-October window. Then there will certainly be a pause around the election, and uh, then there will be, you know, then you start to hit Thanksgiving, and then there another window tends to open up right at the end of the year before the uh, Christmas holidays. So I think there is an opportunity for a number of additional tech IPOs this year. Uh, I saw one company called the Trade Desk, which just flipped its filing public yesterday, meaning that typically they, uh, that companies do that typically when they intend to start a roadshow relatively soon. And so that indicates that there's, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more in the next uh, week or so to try to capture that window, as I mentioned, in the September and early October timeframe. So we do expect to see a number of deals come to market in that time period and then probably with a pause around the presidential election. Indeed, it's a highly unusual presidential election year. Um, I mean, the uh, the Facebook IPO actually that was in two thousand and twelve. That was, um, but it, but it was earlier in the year, wasn't it? Around May, June ish. I don't know. I believe you, so. Yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about this summer in particular because it seems like it's actually been. You know, I think people were. I, I remember a lot of folks that I spoke to were, were getting a little nervous, sort of going into the summer. But but it's actually been. It seems like it's been stronger than expected. We had the 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 Twilio. Um, uh, Talon, I think both of those, and then there's a few others that are like you mentioned on the horizon. I think I read earlier today that like Coupa Software, um, Newtonics are reportedly um, 
kind of lining up to, to kind of make it into maybe this window that you're talking about. So, so kind of give me an assessment of, of, of the summer. I mean, is it, were expectations, um, I mean, did, did, were, was, was the reality sort of better than what people expected or, or is it sort of on par with expectations? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to look at that. First of all, when you talk about expectations, I think there is, there has historically been a quote summer swoon in the market and so often stocks in august have not performed very well when you know people tend to start to go on vacation companies get done reporting earnings and then the market you know sort of volume goes way down and sometimes we have seen negative performance from the market during the summer i think Clearly, the market has performed better than that this summer. So I think that has been a bit of surprise. So when people talk about expectations, I think they may be talking about overall market performance, which has clearly, I think, been a little bit better than people expected. I think relative to the IPO pace, we're pretty much where people thought we would be. There was there were low expectations for the pace of IPOs this year, and I think we've, we've sort of fit that model. However, uh, the class of... 2016 to date, while there have been relatively few of them, have performed very well. They, I believe, uh, you know, I put in that post that I wrote that I think they were up 87% or so at that point, which was a, a few weeks ago. And uh, whereas the class of 2015 did not perform very well, I think they were only up uh, 5% or so. So fewer deals, better performers. I think it's challenging to draw too many parallels between the companies that have gone out, although I think it's fair to say that the deals were all priced relatively conservatively, meaning that they did not really push the envelope on pricing and try to price the deals too high, which helped. So they had deals probably priced a little bit more rationally, which tends to lead to better aftermarket performance. You also saw the first couple of deals that came out in the uh, uh, earlier this year were tended to be more profitable companies because, uh, again, in, in more volatile times, uh, investors can look for a, quote, safer alternative, and those might be companies that are a little bit more profitable. So, for example, Impinge was a relatively small IP, IPO. It was an RFID company, or it is an RFID company, and that was quite profitable. Acacia is a, a communi optical communications company from the Boston area. That was also quite profitable. Uh, and then you had the higher growth companies come out, so Talend and uh, Twilio, which were more the classic higher growth uh, software companies. And Twilio certainly captured a lot of excitement and people's imagination, not uh, only because they Uber is, I believe, about 12% of their revenue. So there, there was a strong linkage between that company and Uber. And I think most people are aware of just how well Uber is doing. So that was, some people saw that as a way to play the success of Uber. So in general, we're seeing smaller number of deals, probably about the pace that, that folks expected, but uh, stronger performance. So I think getting back to your question about expectations, I think both the overall market has performed a little bit better than expected this summer, and the IPOs, again, albeit just a few of them, have performed quite well. What kind of reception or, or even just questions um, are you getting from media analysts and, and investors um, when you're doing your roadshows now as opposed to maybe a year ago? I think the, you know, the profitability or path to profitability is a little more paramount to investors and analysts 
now. I think there is an expectation that either companies will be profitable upon their IPO or that they have a very strong, uh, clear path to profitability. I think that, you know, again, that ties with my earlier comments about volatility in the market in uh, volatile times. People look for profit. They sometimes favor profitability over growth, although that flips pretty quickly. And when markets tend to get better, volatility goes down a little bit, investors switch over and are looking for higher growth stories. And uh, Twilio certainly fits that profile. So I think that is one area that uh, investors have been particularly interested in. I think the IPO process has changed quite a bit. And with the sort of democratization of information with the internet, which is not obviously a new topic, but you have to assume that everybody sees all of the news now. So in, you know, back when I first started doing investor relations in the mid to late 80s, information was literally faxed out to people, right? So that shows how long ago that was. And uh, information was much less readily available. Now everybody sees every press release every piece of information that companies put out. Companies have to be very thoughtful when they're leading up to an IPO about um, trying to raise their visibility with investors. Uh, one of the biggest complaints we hear from institutional investors is that they don't want the IPO roadshow to be the first time that they've met a company because it's very difficult to really do your work and build a model and get to know a company just in a very short meeting. So I think companies are starting the Wall Street outreach and their IR programs, if you will, uh, much, much earlier. And I think that is very beneficial. And most of the companies that uh, have gone public so far this year have done that. And uh, I mean that they are going out, meeting with research analysts, meeting with key investors, uh, maybe doing a little bit more in the financial media and trying to raise awareness of, the, of their companies well in advance of a public offering. And I think that that really helps when investors feel like they know the company, they understand the business model, and they know and trust the management teams. That's really a huge factor for the comfort level of institutional investors and tends to bode well for the offerings of those companies. So you, you mentioned sort of the, the, the democratization of information. And, you know, I remember, gosh, it must have been like, what now, 2009 or so, when Sun Microsystems was out there, you know, on the forefront of this, you know, obviously it's now, they're now defunct, but, um, you know, trying to, trying to lobby for using social media to communicate with the investor community. Um, what's happened? Can you give us an update on sort of, you know, what's happened since then and, you know, how much has um, the investor community, the analyst community embraced um, social media for financial disclosure? Yeah, great question. I think it's been a, it, it remains a mixed bag and there are pros and cons. I think clearly we're seeing um, the impact of social media on both PR and IR. I think clearly PR is way ahead in terms of the pervasiveness and use of social media as IR is. However, just today, this morning, I saw that uh, early this morning, Elon Musk tweeted out that he was going to have a product announcement at noon 
Pacific time. And I think Tesla's stock was up about a percent and a half between when he tweeted that and uh, the, the noon telecast. And I actually didn't see what happened to the stock afterwards. But that certainly shows that, again, the democratization, everybody sees that. And uh, Tesla has said that his Twitter account is part of their disclosure package. So that is allowed by the SEC. And but it certainly has a big impact. Now, obviously, that is a very high profile, closely watched stock. But it does show that uh, social media can impact the equity markets quite, uh, you know, in, in a very impactful way. So, uh, you know, I think there are, again, there are pros and cons. And we, we urge our clients to be uh, on the conservative side and careful about social media. However, it's very important that all companies be a public, certainly all public companies have a social media strategy clearly understanding what roles that each spokesperson should take within that, uh, whether, and that would include corporate blogs and Twitter accounts and LinkedIn. And so, um, you know, it's very important to have a social media strategy as that, that dovetails in both with your PR strategy and your IR strategy. And so, you know, but, but there is no question and that Tesla was a great example this morning of how social media can help to move the market. So let's talk again about about unicorns. Um, you know, there were there were many more unicorns uh, a year ago at this time than there are today. Um, I think there were a lot of companies that uh, were deemed overvalued, and their valuations came kind of back down to earth. So I wonder what role, if any, does PR play in a company's overall valuation? Well, PR can play a very substantial role, uh, and if not done well, it can play a negative role. I think there's no question that companies, as I think I mentioned earlier, companies are starting their IR strategies earlier, they're starting their PR strategies earlier. And certainly as a private company, you can be much more aggressive than you can as a public company. And many of the companies that were the so-called unicorns were very aggressive. Uh, and I think some were overly aggressive. And I think that has to be factored in when management teams are contemplating their outward facing strategy is how aggressive they really want to be or should be. Uh, there is intense demand and appetite for, for among the investment community for information. And until a company files publicly, they you really don't have a clear picture of their financials. So companies can tout relationships or partnerships or um, new deals that they might have. And it's really hard to tell the financial implication on each company within those partnerships. So for example, you could cite a large partnership, but the economics on it for your company might not be very good. So you could get a significant bump in valuation just by announcing that partnership but until you file for a public offering, investors at large don't really know how meaningful that is. Now, private investors 
will get full disclosure, so they will know. But I think a number of the unicorns got a little bit ahead of themselves. It's amazing how quickly you know unicorns were viewed as darlings, and then it became a almost a dirty word pretty quickly. And we are seeing some of them uh, run out of money. As I mentioned earlier, there was uh, you know private capital was readily available at very high multiples and valuations, and that phenomenon fed on itself for quite a while. Now a lot of the VCs are pulling back. And they are, you know, there were lots of talks about bubbles and companies getting ahead of themselves from a valuation perspective. Funding to a certain extent has dried up a little bit and valuations have come down. So now a number of those, uh, quote, unicorns are having, you know, just cash burn was out of control and now they're pulling back. I do think if I, if you look back to the, 1999 tech bubble, you're, you, know, you do have a radically different situation here. I think generally speaking, the, the larger companies and the companies that would go public at some point do have a much better handle on their financials. They understand the importance of profitability to investors and there is not a you know, such a willingness to to overspend and an understanding of customer acquisition costs, things like that as an example. Whereas back in 99, you saw that uh, there really, there wasn't that level of understanding. It was all about, you know, you heard about over and over again, we're just trying to get to scale and then we'll figure the business model out. And that didn't end up working very well for most companies. So I think there's a lot more rationality to a lot more rational thinking among management teams and companies now. So we do have a slightly different phenomenon. And getting back to your question, I think that what companies do both from a PR perspective and from an IR perspective is, you know, can certainly impact valuation and is, is really important how a company is perceived in the long run. Um, I'll just conclude this part by just saying that, um, you know, investor relations, which we're really focused on is really can be really summarized by managing expectations. And you really don't want expectations for a company to get ahead of itself because it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, um, you really over the long term, you want to establish credibility both with the media and with investors. And that's very important from the outset. So I'm, I'm not sure how much insight you have into this this piece of it because it's, it, it might be more on sort of the product PR side. But, you know, a, a year ago or even 18 months ago, what, a frustration I was hearing from um, from folks doing tech PR was, um, oh, well, the, the media only wanted to talk to us um, if, if, if we have a unicorn. Oh, you know, they, if it's not a unicorn, they're not even, you know, they don't even respond to the email or whatever it might be. And, you know, now, you know, as you point out, I mean, unicorns sort of become this dirty word in Silicon Valley. Um, I, I wonder what resonates with the with the media now. I mean, is it are, are they is the bar still set at are you a unicorn or have they changed what they're interested in? And I don't know if, if you have any insight in that. Sure. I, I think there's always yeah. there. I mean, look, fundamentally. And everybody that is in the PR business knows there are fewer 
reporters out there than ever. And, you know, a lot of the, the publications have cut back. Um, a lot of, you know, many online publications are quite small. And so if you are a reporter and there's only a few reporters left in your, uh, you know, whatever media outlet you're working for, and you also have to cover Apple and Facebook and Amazon and uh, what what the really big companies are doing, you just have very limited bandwidth. And that's just that is just a fact. And so they are going to be more discriminatory, if you will, focusing on the companies that they think have larger valuations or are you know, likely to go public at some point. I think that's you know having some financial news does often is often the threshold of whether a reporter wants to talk to you or not. So I think, yeah, but, but I would argue that that's almost always been the case. And it's really, from a PR standpoint, you really have to be able to package a story appropriately, make it easy for reporters to do their job, have a clear, compelling message. And I think you can break through, but clearly, uh, and particularly for financially oriented reporters and financially oriented media outlets, you have to have a financial, having a a strong financial element to the story and being willing to reveal some financial metrics, even as a private company, can make the difference between getting covered or not. And so, again, I think that most private companies don't want to reveal financials and there's no... They're, they're, they're not legally compelled to do so. However, it can make a difference whether or not you are included in a story or whether or not you are you know, featured, your company is featured in a story. So I, I think there, you know, there's always been that sort of threshold with the media, particularly the top tier media outlets. It's certainly been exacerbated by the fact that, you know, generally speaking, there are fewer reporters out there forever than ever. And so they are uh, really legitimately forced to narrow their focus and cover the what they believe to be the more impactful companies. So your your firm also does um, does crisis. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that for a moment and and sort of making the distinction in, in terms of sort of how you know how a firm like yours would would advise a client around um, a crisis versus. Um, Versus, say, a tech or or, or you know, sorry, a product or or a consumer um, uh, crisis firm. So, so let's say there's there's a consumer crisis. So I assume a firm like yours would only really want to get involved once it looks like that crisis gonna it will impact the company's stock price. Um, so tell me a little bit, sort of, how your role works, sort of, in parallel with, say, like a crisis, you know, a consumer crisis team that might be dealing with, you know, really angry parent blogs because their kids are getting a rash when they're putting a diaper on. Sure. Yeah. It's. Uh, yeah. I think the the biggest factor is to make sure, from a company standpoint, to make sure that there is a strong connection and linkage between the in this in using your example, the consumer PR team and the financial communications team or the IR team. And you're right, our, our role as you know, our, our firm focuses on investor relations, uh, financial media relations. So we're, our crisis roles are typically when public companies, when some crisis is impacting the stock price of a publicly traded company. And what we want to try to avoid is being blindsided by 
a crisis that could have been handled earlier or more easily uh, by, let's say again, in your case, the consumer team, um, had we known about it earlier. And so it's really important from a, uh, you know, our client perspective, or in this case, the company, that um, whether it's the uh, CMO or VP marketing, that there is a good line of communication between the financial team and the consumer team or the product team, as the case may be. And that when a product, when a problem surfaces, it's disseminated widely enough internally so that everybody knows, hey, watch out for this. We don't think this is going to turn into anything major, but we want to get it on everybody's radar. And that way the company and its advisors can come together and really work out a cohesive strategy for dealing with it. And I understand that's easy to say, and sometimes crises do just come up, uh, whether it's something that a competitor does or you know, there's M&A in the sector or whatever, or as you said, there's a some sort of product failure. However, I think the lesson that we've seen over the years is that um, typically dealing with things quickly and efficiently really makes a makes a huge difference in how you deal with it, uh, you know, how you address the public or how you address whatever constituent is impacted is really important. And the internal communications notifying all the teams that could be affected and working that strategy out early often leads to much better results. So before before we run out of time here, I actually want to make sure that we talk about, about China because uh, Blue Shirt expanded into China last year, correct? I believe you guys focused on sort of pre-IPO Asia-based companies that are looking to list on the U.S. markets. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the timing of that, because I think when you all went into that market, the, the, the Chinese economy was actually just uh, just softening because you're, you're in, in Beijing, right? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and just so let me know sort of about the timing and then sort of how that's going. Sure. Well, first of all, for us, it was about finding the right person to lead the effort for it. And we hired a really great guy in Beijing named Gary Dvorak, who is uh, extremely experienced in IR and also has great, he's a U.S. guy, but has really great connections and ties to and a long family history in China. And so for us, it's, it's, our growth is really always about finding the right person. And Gary, you know, fit that bill to a T. And he, we, we do focus on companies that uh, want to list in the U.S. And so we've worked with, you know, a number of, uh, you know, both large and small companies that fit that bill. Uh, we've worked with a, working with a number of solar companies, number of energy companies, some of the larger internet companies in, in China. And so it's, it's gone very well. And, and we, again, we were less concerned about the market and more concerned about finding the right person. I think it's been a very, um, you know, interesting process because as we've gotten to know more investors that focus on that market and the equity analysts that that focus on the companies you know there are often different different levels of uh, different areas of interest than uh, US investors I think they're you know getting back to the our earlier conversation Arthi about uh, volatility yeah you know, there's been 
clearly a lot of global volatility as we've looked over the last 12 months, right? China has, um, there's been a lot of volatility in that market. Obviously, Brexit has had a huge impact on international and, you know, on this last, uh, in the second quarter earnings cycle for public companies that we just finished up uh, a few weeks ago, virtually every conference call had a question about international exposure generally and European exposure specifically. So company, so analysts and investors really wanted to understand what the impact, potential impact of Brexit was going to be on those companies. That was, you know, nothing that most, nobody really saw that coming, uh, that decision and that vote uh, in the UK. So that was a, a big surprise to the market. Uh, the US markets have obviously come back since then and, and are now trading at near record or near record highs, as we discussed earlier. Uh, the UK market has really not recovered uh, from that. And I think they're probably in for uh, a bit of a long road there. And, uh, you know, China certainly has, you know, it's shown um, a lot of resilience while the, there has been a lot of volatility. There is a lot of resilience, what with, you know, competitor, strong competitors to Uber and, you know, essentially really, really strong uh, Chinese companies that, uh, you know, with similar to U.S. business models, whether it's in e-commerce or telecom or Internet more broadly, that, uh, you know, it's not not the case that U.S. companies are going to be able to just come in there and dominate that market. So I think they've shown a lot of resilience from Chinese companies. And, uh, you know, we're excited to be partnering with them and uh, as they consider options here in the U.S., so I'll, I'll close on on this note. I mean, it sounds like you're generally bullish about the state of um, of IPOs in the U.S. market, um, or I guess specifically in the U.S. tech market, for the second half of 2016. We are. We think. Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't know. I think there will be more. There should be a few more IPOs than in the first half. I don't think it's going to be again. It's not going to be a huge IPO year. We are seeing, and you know, our firm has done more tech IPOs than any other investor relations firm in the U.S. So we have a pretty good perspective and and pretty good visibility into the IPO pipeline. And I will tell you that the pipeline of companies that has confidentially filed for IPOs is as strong as I've probably ever seen it. That whole phenomenon of filing confidentially was enabled by the Jobs Act. And so it, uh, for those listeners who may not know, it allows companies to file their S1s with the SEC confidentially until they're until they're ready to a few weeks before they're ready to start their IPO roadshow and our sources both you know both we know because we have a number of clients that are lined up ready to go public and our sources in the investment banking community uh, have told us that the pipeline is extremely strong I think so for 2016, you know, we again we expect uh, we'll probably see a few deals in the September October time frame, a little pause around the election, and then a few deals trying to get out by the end of the year. But we think 2017 is going to be a very strong year. You know, again based on our visibility and the backlog that we're seeing both from uh, clients that we have today, and I would also share that the 
interest level uh, and activity level seems to have picked up uh, noticeably in the last in, in in the last thirty days. So that leads us to believe that a lot of companies are going to prepare in the second half of the year and be ready for IPOs in twenty seventeen. We'll have to bring you back on at some point in twenty seventeen to see if. Um See if this sort of came to came to fruition as you as you see it. Well, I would I would welcome that opportunity, and uh, looking back is always fun, isn't it? Um, all right. Well, Alex, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks very much. I really appreciate you having me on, and look forward to speaking again soon. All right. Well, we've we've dug into a lot of topics here, and we have one more to go before the end of the show. Uh, let's talk about measurement. So, with that, I will bring Jenny Chapman onto the show. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to co- collaborate with the Holmes Report and with you, Artie. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So, so you were, you were with Gorkana. Um, you you led the U.S. business for Gorkana, and you were with them through their acquis- through um, their being acquired by Cision. I think that was last year, right? Um, and then you just recently left uh, Cision, or I guess Gorkana now owned by Cision. Um, do you want to sort of give our readers just some sort of insight into what you did at both Gorkana and Cision? Yeah, I was the managing director of Gorkana and ran the um, North America business um, and, you know, was developing both the media contact side and all of the relationships we were building with journalists. As you know, um, that was a big part of the Gorkana value proposition. And, you know, through our collaboration, I interviewed with Liz Gaines and Nellie Bowles, who were both, you know, star journalists at your Intuit um, Summit um, and um, was running the, the insights business as well which is all about measurement, right? And, and not just using tools, but beyond tools, help having, having a, a team that can help you find the insights from those tools so that you can set up programs that really help, you know, PR um, ensure that it's getting credit for the contribution it's making to, to the organization. So I was running the enterprise business at, at Cision, um, both on the insight side and, and, um, and the overall kind of you know, platform offering that that Cision has, right? Um, yeah, and, and and just to give our readers some, or sorry, listeners um, some context, um, um, Jenny collaborated with us at, at our innovation summit um, the in two, in San Francisco in two thousand fourteen and in two thousand, um, or actually I think it was two thousand fifteen two thousand sixteen, um, in which she interviewed um, Liz Gaines from from Recode. And Nellie Bowles, who was at the Guardian at the time, who I think has left the Guardian to do a new venture. Um, I want to say it's with Vice, but I'm not sure. But um, but anyway, yeah, and those were great conversations. Jenny Jenny did uh, did a really great job with those. Um, and now you are focusing primarily on on your role at Amic. Um, yes, I'm the North American co-chair for Amic, which is the trade association that's focusing on setting standards for the measurement and evaluation of, of communication. Because again, that's something that's I've worked with, with in you know for 20 years in terms of um, running you know insight businesses and businesses that help clients to to measure the impact of their marketing and their communications. So we are in the thick of measurement month right now. Um, and uh, which, which of course, you know, Amic puts on. So I, I'd love to get some perspective from you around um, sort of what what are some of the trends or, or interesting insights that are emerging. So we've we've done Europe at this point, right? Europe was the first week of September last week. Um, of course, by the time our listeners are listening to this, it, it, these these dates may not they may not be applicable. But um, but but Europe was the week of, of December uh, of September fifth. So. 
Um, Jenny, what what emerged out of out of the European discussion? Um, what emerged was a lot of resounding support, actually, for the new framework um, that Amic has launched, which is an integrated framework to help PR practitioners um, set standards and set up a measurement program in their organization. And so, what this um, new framework does is it's taking the whole PESO. Um, framework and making sure that there are now metrics that go along with this. So when you think of your paid, earned, shared, et cetera, and, and owned, that you have metrics that are available um, that you can you know, put together a balanced scorecard. So what's great about it is it's like you can go in, it's an online tool, you can put in what the objectives are for your program, what you're doing, and then the right metrics will actually pop up to help you guide and you know guide your teams about what you should be measuring and it also helps set it set that it's not you doing it this is something that's been researched it's a, it was a collaboration that was done across continents um, so we had participation in asia in europe in the united states um, with academics um, from around the world um, and with um, you know uh, business consulting firms as well um, so it really has the input of a you know, across variation of organizations to put together this framework. So that was a big thing. There's a lot of embracement. The UK government has embraced it. Um, the, you know, major, um, like Ketchum, as, uh, as, as well as other PR agencies in the UK that are very well known have embraced it um, and are, you know, using it to put together their programs for clients. Right. You know, um, I actually, after you and I kind of initially spoke about it, I I was sort of playing around with it, and um, and and it looks like so online. I mean, it it even gives sort of some suggestions because I know there's there's different pieces of it, right? There's um, and and you you sort of input like you know your objectives, the activities, you know what are the the outtakes from that, um, and then and then outcomes and outcomes outputs and impact. And it seems like the latter that's where the industry tends to struggle a little bit in terms of what. Um, how do you measure outcomes? How do you measure impacts? And it tends to give some guidelines around how to do that. Um, so is it, because when I was playing with it online, it seemed like it was, it sort of gave you a framework for, for, for really kind of reporting all of these things, right? It sort of held your hand through all of the different aspects of, of putting together a measurement plan. And then, and I, and I, I, I didn't actually do the, I didn't get that final PDF because I, I didn't have the, the data to input. Mm -hmm. Um, but but I'm curious, sort of what that what that ultimate sort of PDF that that the that the framework generates like what what does that what yeah. does that give people? It's a whole plan. I mean, mm -hmm. that's great. You're exactly right, Artie. That's um, you're hitting the the nose, you know, the nail on the head there. That it allows you you put in what's the activity I'm doing, mm -hmm. what's the goal of that activity. Okay, if that's what I'm doing, these are the things that I should be measuring that follows an industry standard, and then it outputs to you a one pager. That gives you the metrics that you should be we should be evaluating, and then that really gets you very close to kind of the scorecard and putting together a balanced scorecard for your organization. And it and it's integrating both, you know, what you might get in terms of you know coverage and tone from traditional media, but as well as earned media and integrating social into it. So you're not just looking at one piece of the pie, but you're looking at it holistically. So um, you'd mentioned that you know you've gotten a lot of positive feedback um, around it. I mean, are, have there been, has there been any interesting sort of insights or pieces of feedback you're getting from the industry, whether it's 
um, oh my gosh, I never considered the fact that I really needed to be putting more emphasis on X. Or have you been getting anyone saying, okay, this is great. It's a great foundation, but can, you know, are you all planning to, you know, to have another iteration in the future, which you, where you incorporate X, you know, this, that, and, and the other. You know, we launched the, the new framework in June. So I think it's a little, probably a little, or we just finished this one. So first we want to have to get it out there, have people using it, but absolutely. We're always taking that feedback in. Um, this is like a stage two, you know, Amec first launched the um, Barcelona principles um, and, you know, that was probably like almost seven years ago at this point, we had the, you know, version one of this, um, you know, you know 1.0 of the framework that was launched, um, I want to say 2013. Um, and now we have, you know, version two of it where we really, you know, we had given guidance that social should be measured, et cetera, but this is taking, it has already taken it another step. So that you really can go in here, it's like very concrete. So it's not, it's it's saying here are the things that you really should be measuring within the context of the activity that you're doing. So it really tries to bring it down to the day-to-day -day of what are the kinds of things that PRs would be doing, what kind of campaigns, what kind of activity, what kind of objectives, and then tying that all together so that you have an integrated, you know, an integrated scorecard. So, I mean, there is, um, you know, one thing that I'm glad, which I think you guys did really well is sort of the ease of use. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, a lot of these, um, a lot of times when I've seen tools like this, it's sort of, um, it's it's sort of daunting just to even gather all the information. So um, you guys have these, like this tile format and it sort of has these numbers that tell you where you are in the process. So you kind of can gauge, you know, am I almost done yet? Um, so no, it's, 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 no, I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty usable. So it'll be interesting. And I, and I know regionally, I, it seems like there's, there's differences in terms of where, um, where the industry is around, you know, in particular around measurement. And so I, I mean, maybe Jenny, you and I can speak again after, after you've completed measurement months to get more specific feedback around, you know, in Europe, you know, what was, you, you know, what really worked well, what did people want to see, you know, different. And then right now, I think we're in the midst of the Asia PAC uh, measurement week. Um, it'd be interesting to see sort of what, what the feedback is there. And then of course, um, next week in North America, what, what people have to say, because I'm sure there'll probably be very, you know, uh, variances based on, based on the region. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, though, there's variances, but there's a lot of similarity that we'll, we've seen in the U.S. And I think that we will see in Asia Pacific and in the um, with Europe, Asia and the U.S. is, you know, in some markets, there's more diversification and there's more of an emphasis on social and others. Traditional is still very you know, more important you know, print, et cetera. So those are the, some of the differences we see consistently. But I think what we're, we're seeing is more and more and more, more pressure on organizations to have some kind of measurement. Um, you know, it's happened in marketing and what we're seeing more and more is that people are starting to use this and all the research that we've done, IPR has put out work in this area. Amec has done a survey in this area that shows Arthur Page also among its membership um, showed that that's like measurement is one of the top three things that are, is being invested in um, and at, you know, Fortune 1000 companies. So, you know, this is just helping, you know, PR practitioners to actually get it done. Um, because again, you know, I think we're all understand that the metrics aren't going away. Those numbers are there and, you know, what gets, you know, measured gets done, you know, and what gets measured gets investment, right? What gets measured and can show its value gets a seat at the table. 
And the lot of the debate that's going on is, you know, this is something we need to continue to really support. And all of us have an understanding of it, anyone who's connected to PR and to communications, because if we don't, um, then we're setting ourselves up for, um, for, you know, for, for a difficult time. And then, you know, the next five to 10 years, if we're not able to come to the table with the same kind of metrics and the same kind of, you know, ability to show the value of what we're doing, but doing it from a place of understanding, right? So making sure that we're not trying to use the same metrics as marketing, but that we're making sure we have the right context, that we understand that quantity isn't quality. Um, and, you know, that what PR is really, you know, all about, like, what's the role of PR? You know, it's really about building and maintaining companies' reputation and goodwill and deepening relationships among audiences, the audience of today and your audience of tomorrow. So making sure you've got the tools that help you do that, that's just, it's, it's almost, it's becoming table stakes. And I think that's the thing we're seeing more and more in the conversations. Um, and as an industry and a trade organization, we're just trying to help a, make it easy, like you said, very easy, user-friendly. A junior person on the team can go in and figure this out. Um, but then providing insight with the kind of people you collaborate with and making sure um, that we're encouraging people to move away from a one-number approach. Right. Because yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, in fact, in fact, just sort of building on what you're saying. I mean, one of I will say, you know, we have the the call for entries are open right now for the Innovation Saber Awards, and one of the big pieces of feedback we got from last year, you know, because I sat through all of the, uh, all of the jury panels, um, judges just outright, I mean, I would say that they would go to the last page of the entry or, or, or wherever it, wherever the results section was and read those and read sort of what sort of measurement uh, metrics they used against the campaign. And the judges pretty unanimously had said that if, if they limited the metrics to just say like impressions, they were they were done with that. They were done with that entry. That entry went right into the trash, and um, it didn't. Even if the creative was really really strong, if it, they didn't have the metrics to back it to back up um, the results that came from it, um, they they tended not to take it seriously. Um, so so that was one of the things that I'm actually been educating people on with the Innovation Saber Awards this year is, you know, really really take that that measurement part seriously because increasingly, and, and our judges are mostly client side. Um, they, they, if, if the results, if the, if the measurement isn't sophisticated, if it isn't, if it doesn't go beyond, you know, the, you know, impressions, um, then, then yeah, then they just can't take the work seriously. Cause you know, as client side folks, they know that internally they couldn't get buy-in for it if they didn't, if they, if all they had were impressions to sort of validate it. Well, I'm so glad you brought that that first that's really encouraging to hear that you know you're seeing that as well right that that is where the industry is going both in Europe as well as in the US that people are looking for that kind of um, you know backup and the second thing that I thought was really important is that that you said was around you know impressions because um, you know you can go only so far in some organizations you know you'd be surprised right how much that continues to have can have so much weight but more and more people know you can buy impressions. And, you know, at some point, as you know, um, I have a story that a woman, a senior person at GE in the comms department said she was sitting three presentations. And the first presentation, it was, you know, a hundred million impressions. And, you know, that was a fairly big campaign. And the second one, it was, 
you know, 250 million impressions, but it was a smaller campaign than the first one. And then the third one was some ridiculous number of more of impressions. And that was a campaign she'd never even heard about. So then you lose a lot of your legitimacy, right? So um, I think, you know, that's just, you know, something that um, we just have to continue to support across, you know, the Holmes Report, you know, Amec, IPR, you know, really working together. And maybe one of the things, you know, we'd love and be very happy for you to link um, to everyone who is a judge, have them link to the the, the site, or we could prepare, prepare, you know, prepare perhaps a one pager that that goes out to everyone who's doing an entry, so that when they put their entries together, they're putting them following the framework, because this way, then you kind of have a more apples to apples comparison. And, that's actually one of the suggestions that came out of um, one of the Twitter chats that was held in Europe last year is to create maybe some judging standards where we all kind of embrace um, the framework and, and ask people to put their submissions in, you know, using a, a similar framework. What do you think? Well, that's that's well, that's actually it's one of the so one of the criteria that the judges actually use to evaluate the entries, right, is is uh-huh. is this, you know, who's where are the various organizations in terms of their own sort of development of a, of a measurement um, of measurement criteria? And for, for some of those that might be, okay, they used AMEC, um, they used the AMEC framework. For others, it might be um, that they, you know, that, that they, they have their own sort of, you know, a lot of agencies now would say they have their own sort of proprietary, you know, metrics, or they have some sort of, or sometimes it varies on client to client, right? Because some clients will, will, will let you have, you know, just like bare bones, um, access to to data others will you know will let you see their google analytics and 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 that so that's what they'll use their results based on and some in the and i will say some of the best entries or the entries that tend to wow the judges the most tend to tie to business metrics are they are the the folks who are able to say look this is the campaign we did we were given insight into you know sales revenue for this period that the campaign ran and we saw you know this this percentage of a spike um and and for some for some folks, it's, it's, you know, it's retail sales for others. Um, you know, it's, it's online sales. And for, for some, it's, you know, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a campaign, if it's some kind of um, call to action, whether it's, um, you know, this many people downloaded this coupon or this many people donated money to, to this particular cause that we were trying to raise attention against. Um, so, so, so I, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I think the AMIC framework is one way that people can do it, but there are some other ways that we do see in the awards competition that work, um, depending on the client, depending on the, depending on the campaign. And, um, and, and yeah, part of what the judges are looking at is they're looking at how sophisticated is this particular organization? Do they, have they moved beyond impressions? And, and so I think it would be, it would be smart for people and, you know, everyone who's submitting to really think about that section and think about however they want to present metrics, whether it's through this framework, whether they have their own framework, whether there's others out there that they're looking at. Um, but it would, it would definitely be smart for some, everybody to at least think of some sophisticated way that they're presenting their results. And that plays into already something you, we, when we, you know, talked um, last week was, you know, on the one hand, you get these awards and people are saying, hey, if there's no business objectives and I'm not linking the activity to the outcome, I don't want to read it. On the other hand, when you talk with agencies, you hear time and again, and I've certainly experienced that with some clients where they won't actually give you that data, right? So you're kind of caught in this, you know, this, this situation and, um, you know, how do you combat that? And I think part of that is really having the, you know, using the case histories are out there about why this is best practice, 
Um, and again, emphasizing with organizations that why you don't want to go with just one metric, right? Um, because mm -hmm. you, know, you, I you can't tell you how many clients where you know you give them a balanced scorecard. Here are the ten metrics. They decide they only want one, mm -hmm. and then they choose the one that goes down. Oh well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but but you know, but that that's a good point though, because one of the frustrations I hear is. And and we and, and I hear this from judges as well, right? Especially clients side judges, is they have they can see vanity metrics, right? Like metrics that are sort of been tweaked, right, so that they always look good. And right. and actually, one year one of the judges said this, and she said, you know what? She goes, I'm tired of seeing, and, and you know, because she had, we had gone through a couple of entries that were just like every everything was funny, everything was great, all the arrows kept pointing up. And she said they, they had to have had a bump in the road, there had to have been a hiccup, there had to have been some point where they had to stop and say. Look, we need to retool a little bit because this, this it was it was a particular campaign that um, had a lot of controversy around it, and we and we all all, the, all everybody in the judging room knew that, and so, and so she had said, you know, I she's like I just it just feels disingenuous to me that this is just all you know roses and that they're they're not giving us insight into the point at which they said, look, this might be causing us more trouble than it's worth. We might need to rethink our strategy. Um, so so in some ways, I mean, I think it's actually quite powerful. To be able to say, look, we tried this; it was not working, and we and but but it gave us insights into, into you know, um, retooling it in this direction, and this is why you know we had the confidence in going in this direction. This is why this our new direction was was even sounder than where we started from because we had the data and the metrics to tell us. Absolutely, I mean, you know, again, it, I think it all goes again to that legitimacy, like we were talking earlier. You can buy impressions if you. You know, it always looks too good to be true, sounds too good, looks too good. It probably is too good. And um, and then you lose again what we talked about earlier. You, you lose that legitimacy. So um, it shouldn't always about being I think some of the most interesting entries and the most interesting um, the way that you gain value in an organization is when you come in and help solve the problem and help get bring understanding. Or you come in and say, hey, we tried this, it didn't work, but we used the data, we found this out, and here's how we changed course and how it helped us to change course, and here are what the results are. Um, and, you know, that's the, the people who do that, the organizations that do that, you know, they, it shows in many ways in their business results um, and in, in the, the success um, of their campaigns, and I think also often in the strength of their reputation. Great, great points. So, so any, can you preview, Jenny, um, sort of what any, any other trends or insights that you think might emerge from the North, from the North America um, measurement week next week? Um, obviously, it sounds like the framework is going to um, be a big part of the conversation. Anything else that you, that you think might, might play um, in, in the North America event? Um, I think what you'll see is, again, more education around the framework and how to use it and hopefully some examples of people who have used it. Um, some of the there'll be things around also just things we need to know about the use of visuals um, in, in our communications and just some good tactical feedback about how to use and measure those and what's the right way to do that. And then also um, a webinar that I'll be um, hosting with the managing director of Hotspecs. Um, will be um, around, um, you know, how helping communications not hide its light under a bushel, right? So when it comes to modeling and market mix modeling, et cetera, um, providing some guidelines to help 
um, organizations and people who are in the PR department who might feel very intimidated by these kinds of engagements, giving them some guidelines about you know how to ask the right questions, how can they use their data, um, and how can they kind of you know ensure that they are able to be part of that conversation in a relevant way. Um, when it comes to any of this kind of measurement or any of the kind of modeling that um, marketing might be doing to understand the ROI of the different investments in an organization. Interesting. Well, we'll have to um, get you back on the show, Jenny, at some point. We can talk about um, more specifically about what, what emerged from, from all of these different geographies. Um, in the meantime, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And remember, it's uh, www.amec.com. Uh, org.com and if you go there you can click on measurement month there's a full calendar of events and you know they're free so for anyone who's interested and want to send it around to their teams you know the AMIC mission mission is all about education and providing education to the industry around measurement and evaluation of communications so um, it's a great thing to take advantage of all right well thanks uh, again Jenny thank you Artie have a great day And that concludes another episode of the Echo Chamber. Thanks again to our guests today. And thank you to our production team at Marketers for DC. And thank you to our sponsor, March Communications, who also produced the podcast Hacks and Flax. We will be back again soon with another episode. Until then. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers. 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 